This is the weekly Bull and Bear by Wealthdesk, a podcast for financial professionals. Each week, your hosts, Drew Dawkins and Grant Collins, will have an in-depth conversation about what's happening in the market. Good afternoon, everybody. Today is May 4th. We're looking at the market at the end of Monday. It's pretty small, small gains to start the week. The Dow was up 26.07 points or 0.11%, ended the day at 23,749. The S&P was up 12.03 points, or 0.43%, ended the day at 2,842. The VIX was down slightly by 3.28%. We saw the 10-year Treasury dip slightly, um, 0.01 points, so it's now yielding 0.63% on the 10-year. And that's kind of what we're looking at. Um, you know, there's been some, some new mortality uh, issues associated with the coronavirus. That we might be seeing deaths as many as 3,000 a day um, coming to June. Um, but, but, yeah, so it's pretty flat to start the week. Um, Grant, what are some big takeaways? Well, I think one of the biggest takeaways is we saw airline shares really start to uh, drop and for the S&P. So Delta, United, American Airlines all dropped around 5%. Uh, Boeing dropped as well, which, uh, but we also saw some, some gains from Microsoft and Netflix. Uh, Microsoft jumping about 2.4% and Netflix jumping up 3% after, uh, <laughs> as we talked about previously, strong viewership in, in quarantine. Uh, and then also Apple and, and Facebook both rose. So we saw tech uh, help stabilize the, the airlines drop. And one of the big reasons for the airline shares really starting to drop is because uh, during Berkshire Hathaway's uh, annual meeting, which is usually in Omaha, but uh, was the first virtual one, we, we saw Warren Buffett talk about how he uh, he sold out out of all of his positions in all the U.S airlines due to decreased travel, uh, decreased travel demand. Also, one of the big things for Warren Buffett is his favorite stock market indicator, which is the Wilshire GDP, which uh, takes a look at market capitalizations for publicly traded stocks and divides it by uh, quarterly gross domestic product. And uh, he uses, he thinks this is the, the best gauge on, on if stocks are overvalued and if another crash is coming. And we saw that uh, this first quarter here that, that it actually is the, the highest on record. Uh, so he has actually not bought anything compared to uh, 2008 when he, he went on a buying spree. So I think they're, they're sitting on quite a bit of cash at Berkshire Hathaway, but it's interesting to see uh, just like most of the indicators we've been talking about over the last couple of weeks, uh, another big one, the Wilshire GDP ratio is, is signaling a correction is, is coming. Yeah. I mean, Buffett came out and stated um, that, you know, the world has changed for airlines and I don't know how it's changed. I hope it corrects itself in a reasonably prompt way. Uh, I mean, I mean, travel across a wide swath of the globe is limited or, or banned. I mean, I've seen, some countries are looking to kind of create travel zones or spheres. Uh, Australia and New Zealand might, um, you know, kind of launch the first of those, whereas, you know, it's more free travel between those two countries, which have uh, amongst the world's closest bilateral relationships, right? I mean, tons of t Kiwis live in Australia. Um, 
very similar, very similar countries and have always had kind of a close, close culture and then geographic proximity within the Oceania, um, you know, region. So I think countries that are, are close in both proximity and relationship might experience a little bit of an opening, but, but that's, you know, that, that's to be determined. Uh, yeah. And, and you saw, you know, week, weekday, um, for, for Boeing as well, if I'm not mistaken. So that's definitely, you know, airlines was definitely one of the, the segments of the market that has dropped. Um, but even companies like, you know, Disney fell, uh, fell more than 2% following a downgrade. So, so there was a little bit of um, movement in, in, in other sectors as well. Yeah, Disney's an interesting one because uh, it looked like their, their viewership had increased, but not what analysts expected. Uh, and considering that we are recording on May 4th and the latest Star Wars come out, I'm, I'm sure Disney was <laughs> hoping for a little bit better results. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, we, we've seen one of the interesting analysis that's come across is, you know, long-term investments in workroom remotely as people have, you know, evaluated um, what, what's happened so far since the COVID crisis really, really took off. Uh, I mean, you have, you know, you have, uh, you know, what could be up to a $7 trillion investment and in making work more digital by 20. 23. I mean, that, that, those numbers came from ServiceNow CEO uh, Bill McDermott. But, you know, we've, we've seen huge investments across the board. I mean, before the pandemic, only 7% of workers, you know, were really working in a flexible workspace. Now we have uh, 42% of workers who previously did not work from home are doing so. And then that data sees courtesy of CNBC's All-America Economic Survey. So we're seeing you know, huge, huge amounts of investment in, in working from home and, and, and more flexible uh, virtual situations, of course. And it's probably going to continue, especially as I, I believe a lot of companies that didn't think their workforce could, could be productive working from home have now shown that they can be. I think it really is important to see how a lot of the larger companies, if they try to reduce costs by reducing the, the amount of workspace they have in, in large cities, such as San Francisco and New York, where rent or, or owning is is very uh very costly to, to the bottom line and as long as we see people being able to be productive i, I think there's going to be a, a a big shift that here at wellfast we're, we're making a big push for the for virtual and, and how to do client seminars online and really everything that used to be face-to-face -face, how to do it virtually and i believe that this has accelerated what would have taken a couple of years to move to virtual in just a matter of months. And uh, I, I think, you know, as you just mentioned, you know, it's only 7% had flexible workspace and now 42. I mean, that's a, that's a huge growth over just since just in the past couple of months. So I, I think we're going to continue to see uh, a, a bigger push for, for working remotely. Yeah. And service now, which we just mentioned, but it serves as a useful case study because they're up 48% year over year when you're looking at deals of a million dollars or more. Um, so, you know, you're looking at a, a cloud computing company with, with over 10,000 employees, you know, that are working remotely. So we can salvage some productivity amidst, amidst this pandemic. Um, so that, that, that is a good sign. And it's certainly interesting to see what the long-term effects will be, you know, after this thing settles a little bit. Um, I mean, but, you know, that being said, you know, we're getting into, Thursday or uh, 
jobless claims. And, um, you know, as, as we say, I mean, we, we got to mention these claims, but I mean, the news is just going to be bad for a while. Right. I mean, the first time filing, <laughs> it's just, they're numbers you got to look at, but I mean, they're priced into the market clearly that you're just going to be looking at, you know, a plethora of just really bad data. So, I mean, first time filings for unemployment on insurance, you know, they were, they hit $3.84 million last week, um, you know, and then, um, you know, what, 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 the, what, what Dow Jones had been forecasting was, you know, 3.5. Uh, so, so claims are certainly down more than they were towards the end of March, but, you know, they're still, still going up a little bit more than what, what economists surveyed have, have predicted. And it will be interesting to see if that really falls off as some states and, and uh, other key aspects of the U.S. economy begin to reopen. I know we're going to talk about it a little bit later, but some, a lot of states are, are beginning to have some partial openings. You know, we saw Washington have, uh, have big gains in uh, increase in, in jobs as well as, uh, but then contractions in California and Pennsylvania. Uh, we did see the, Fed Chairman Jerome Powell come out last week on Wednesday, say that the unemployment rate is likely to, to rise above 10% from 4.4% in March, uh, and it may even go to 15%, which, which shouldn't be, a, sh shouldn't be a, a big surprise as I think week over week we continue to have staggering numbers of, of unemployment. So I think that one difference that we will see, again, is that when states do begin to reopen, I think that we're going to see the unemployment rate fall pretty drastically compared to other recessions. Well, what's also pretty vexing is that they might be undercounted, right, in terms of people who are actually eligible for benefits. I mean, the Economic Policy Institute, you know, they stipulated that the current claims levels are probably 12 million, um, are, are probably being undercounted by 12 million people. Um, you know, and it's just, you, there's, there's stories of you know, the phone line's not working as people are trying to file for unemployment. Um, you know, the system is just completely overwhelmed. So, so we might be seeing, um, you know, an undercounting there in, in some important regards. Yeah, well, as we mentioned, we, we haven't seen this drastic of, of a drop in unemployment uh, in history, maybe since the Great Depression. So it, it, it is interesting. Uh, that said, I, one thing that I think we have to talk about is, is the rally in April. Uh, you know, the S&P had its third largest monthly gain since World War II, surging just below 13% in April, uh, and was the largest one-month gain since 1987. And it's, it's really interesting that we have seen such a strong rally in the markets. Uh, granted, there's still a lot of unknowns on when states are, are going to open. Uh, you know, overall. Uh, the, the stock market did have a, 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 a big surge in April. So, Drew, what are your thoughts around that, some of the biggest movers and, and why we saw such a surge in April? Yeah, it was a monstrous rally, right? It's the biggest in 33 years. And it really kind of brings home to the old adage, the stock market's not the economy. Uh, that's certainly what we saw over the last 30 <laughs> um, You know, it's, it's very, very unusual for the market to be hemorrhaging millions and millions of jobs and retail stores just closing their doors left and right. And yet we're seeing numbers like, like we have, um, you know, lar largest, third largest monthly gain since World War II and, and, and the biggest one monthly gain since uh, 1987. So there's certainly a gap uh, between 
between the economic data and the stock market, but humans are based on animal spirits. I mean, we've already said that this is to be expected when we're looking at PMIs, when we're looking at unemployment filings, when we're looking at all sorts of economic data, we know they're going to be bad for several months from now. So, I mean, any sign of normality, uh, whether it's, you know, states quasi opening up or, I mean, any good news is just, is, is just jump. So I, I think that's, that's it. It's already, the market's already counted in a lot of these losses, um, you know, regardless of how bad it might be in the second quarter, I think, you know, people are just uh, trying to find a, find a reason to be bullish. So. Yeah, I think you made a great point there is that when we saw that huge slide in March, that really a, a lot of the results that we're seeing were, were already built into the market. And so that's why as we're seeing these staggering numbers come out, they were already built into to, to the big decrease in March Tech did have, I uh, should mention, tech did have a little bit of bounce in April as well, some of the main main drivers there. Uh, and, and that's really because they were reporting better results than expected. We saw Facebook jump uh, on strong advertising sales after they stabilized in, in the last three weeks of April and then continuing to see Amazon and Netflix surge. Uh, Amazon is actually we mentioned, I believe, last week on the podcast is they're continuing to, to hire workers there and and <laughs> Netflix and all the subscription servers. I'm surprised that they haven't crashed yet with the amount of people who are <laughs> at home trying to stay busy. Yeah, I mean, you know, broad sectors were up in April. I mean, the, one of the big outliers being banks. Uh, I mean, you saw a little bit of a sell-off, you know, amongst some of the large banking firms. But, you know, yeah, as you mentioned, tech, uh, tech certainly was a winner. Um, you, you know, it's 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 just really a wait and see, wait and see scenario. Um, I mean, you still have huge issues with supply and demand imbalances, but but I don't know. This this is anyone's guess. Um, you know, Amazon, Amazon and Netflix are up. You know, Apple climbed two point two percent in the month. So so yeah, it's just there's just a lot of things moving to say the least but but i mean yeah and and, and one thing that i a, an interesting study that came out uh from cambridge university and the uh and the fed was what the economic price for what the reaction was to social distancing or to a structural lockdown uh, and and i would encourage uh our, our listeners out there to take a look at this because it was really interesting how um, they took different scenarios of if core workers, uh, effectively those key industries, healthcare, food, and transportation were separated from the rest of the working population and what percentage of those was, was separated and what the, the economic, uh, what the economic effect would be. Uh, and, and they found that if, uh, what they're calling a, a milder lockdown, not what we're seeing uh, today, uh, but with about you know 15 to 30 percent of core workers working and every, everyone else for for eight months, uh, we wouldn't have to wait for a vaccine, and we would have uh, some herd immunity by exposing people slowly to to the disease. And the other staggering one that I found uh, was that a very strict lockdown where they would have 40 percent of core workers and 90 percent of the population locked down for about three months, that the scenario would be just as bad for the economy as having no lockdown at all. 
because uh, infection rates would would delay, but then herd immunity would be prevented. So we would have a, a second bump, which uh, may seem like where we are today uh, as states begin to reopen. Uh, so Drew, I don't know if you have any additional thoughts on this study. I found it very interesting. Well, it laid out a series of policies that could be implemented, starting with inaction to various degrees of, you know, a structured lockdown. Yeah, the big two takeaways being that without social distancing, you're screwed. Uh, the core workforce, you know, the economy could shrink at a monthly rate of 30%. But then, you know, with, with, with some of the more severe lockdowns, you know, you also have massive issues. So it's really finding a policy balance between, you know, the need to have people out and about, but also to, you know, mitigate some of the health effects is going to be crucial. I mean, that's, and, and they, they, you know, whether whatever the blueprint is, it will be interesting in terms of what the hybrid model will be between a, a lockdown and what percent of core workers are out versus what percent of the rest of the population is, is still maintains quarantine. But, but yeah, I mean, it shows that there isn't necessarily a real trade-off between health and the economy because if everyone gets sick and if there's complete, you know, opening up, uh, you're going to have massive economic issues. And I think I was just saw, I forget what meatpacking plant it was, but you know, there was 300 or some odd people who got the virus and almost all of them were asymptomatic. So, I mean, that could be a world of inaction, right? But then at the same time, yeah, the very strict lockdown model, which is, you know, 40% core workers and then the rest of the population, you know, locked down for another three months, that's as bad for the economy as having no lockdown at all. So it's going to be really interesting or really important, I should say, for for governments and local municipal governments to look at this data and find that, you know, in between, in between line. Well, I think that's one of the, the most interesting parts about it is, is there there is the complete strict shutdown of, of having everyone stay inside and, and not having any exposure reduces your your herd immunization where everyone slowly gets it and we build immunity to it and it, it phases out instead of having to rely on a vaccine, uh, whereas not doing anything at all would have been catastrophic because uh, who would have known how it would have impacted many of the, of the key sectors. But that is really important as we think about now some states opening up. Uh, we're seeing uh, a lot of the, the states in the, in the middle of the country and, and in the south begin to begin to open up while we see California and uh, some of the, a lot of the Northeast states still uh, under lockdown and how each state has different reopening policies is gonna be really interesting, I think, because we're, we're seeing all of them take different precautionary measures and who knows if one is, is better than the others, but uh, it, it, it's interesting to see how the different states are, are really reopening. Uh, especially as we now see about a third of of the population living in the United States being open to to partial reopening and and will reopen soon. I know we saw Texas last week. Montana is now in in, in phase one. So moving forward, I, I hope we I hope we don't see a, a second bump. But with states opening up, we, we may see that. Yeah, I mean, as of the end of last week, there's still about 210 million Americans. 64% of the population that are in states that don't have an announced date for reopening. And, and it's, it's tough to see, but a lot of states that 
have or reopened or areas that have reopened. There's been some false starts. I don't know if you saw, but Miami Beach, you know, they had to shut down after a few days because you had thousands of people not wearing masks and kind of acting on the guidance stuff. You know, they want to do. Well, you can't get, you can't get sand in your mask, Drew. Come on. <laughs> right. I mean, they wanted to, you know, take their talents to Miami Beach and, you know, no one looks sexy wearing a coronavirus <laughs> mask. So, uh, you know. <laughs> And, and as a result, you know, no one's, no one's on the beach. So it's the false starts, I think, are going to be kind of, you know, a nature of, of the beast. I saw a, I don't know if it was a clerk or a security guard or someone, unfortunately, was shot dead because he asked somebody to put their mask on as they entered the establishment. That was in Michigan. So you're just going to see all sorts of craziness uh, as, as people are now trying to you know, kind of get back into normality, but, you know, there's going to be all these structures in place that, that they think is, is inhibiting, you know, what would be a regular normal way of life. So. Well, I still think there's, there's two or three, excuse me, three main concerns, right. Is does the reopening add more to uh, the growth of the virus? So did this social distancing work to, to reduce or what do they say, calling it flatten the curve? And then, as we begin to reopen, we may just have a, a second jump and that flattening may have not really have done anything. And then I, th I think two more important points are as, as, as business owners and states are beginning to reopen, do they feel comfortable having their employees back to work and, and serving customers? Because then they're responsible. And, I, and this is where there may be some legal action. I, I they saw there was a discussion in the New York Times and Wall Street Journal about this, but you know, if if employees come back to work and they get sick there, can they sue their employer for, for that? I, I don't know, uh, but I'm sure there's going to be a big debate about that. And, and then do business owners feel like they, uh, their employees are safe? And then also the most important question is whether consumers are going to feel safe enough to venture out into retail stores and bars and restaurants. I think the, the last, the last point is, is really important as we think about the, the reopening is, is are consumers still uh, going to go into stores? I know we've seen <laughs> we've seen coronavirus shutdown protests, but that that's only a select population, and, and it would be interesting to see when the consumer really feels safe enough to to venture out of the out of the quarantine. Yeah, I mean, I mean, we can't shoot the virus, right? So I, I get people are frustrated, but. Um, but yeah, I mean, there, there, there's some cabin fever, of course, associated with this. We saw some of the most ground zero countries in Europe kind of open up a little bit. I mean, Italy, which was, you know, if we look back to what was going on in Italy a month ago, was truly tragic, uh, as, as with Spain. Um, but, you know, they, they're starting to remove some of their um, social distancing on Monday. Uh, you know, they're, they're, their cases have, have gone down and, and things are improving a little bit but then you know there's a, there's other countries and other municipalities where they might not have seen the apex yet we're, we're seeing that in, in in death polls uh sweden which was by far the most lackadaisical or the most uh liberal i should say policy i don't know how you want to describe it which is more or less <laughs> i mean you know allowing citizens to kind of you know work together and enforce their own social distancing guidelines i mean parks were open bars were open uh, they certainly have more deaths than Norway and Denmark, it looks like, which took much stricter standards. But at the same time, you know, I've seen reporting that, well, Sweden also 
what they count as a coronavirus fatality is um, other countries might not, right? So other countries might really, you know, if Sweden sees a couple, a couple of, you know, symptoms in a, in a nursing home and someone passes away, that might be tallied as a coronavirus, whereas other countries might be looking at, you know, an actual positive test. So it's, I mean, when you're looking at differences like that, it's really tough to see, hey, whose who's systems are working and also whose systems just look different because they're using different data and different metrics. I mean, that's the hardest part of trying to find a blueprint as countries around the world and states within our country and everyone's looking at each other's governments to see what's working in terms of social distancing and what's working in terms of trying to balance that with the need of economic growth. So. Well, it's very hard to uh, compare data if you're, if you're evaluating different things. I completely agree. There should be, a, a, from the World Health Organization, there should be some standardized language around that. Uh, but I agree, it's gonna be interesting. It's, it's the same in the States as various states open up, the same in, in Europe, because we saw the British government say that uh, they are gonna lift uh, restrictions here it's too soon but they're they're looking for june 1st uh and then another outlier there is, is belarus because they don't really have any uh any really major restrictions in place currently one thing that should be noted is probably the country that was hit the hardest was italy and europe and we saw that their economy contracted by eight percent uh, which was the forecast. And then on top of that, we've already seen, or on, because of the coronavirus that has really hit, hit them really hard, uh, we saw that they have been, uh, they've been downgraded to just above junk, uh, junk status from Fitch ratings. Uh, and that's, that's pretty devastating considering the Italian economy was already in a weak position before COVID-19 hit them. And I, I think they're, they're in a little bit of a hole there and considering I believe Italy's the fifth largest economy in Europe, and for them to uh, be hit that hard and, and now have a, a downgrading is, is something to note. Yeah, I mean, poor Italy. I mean, we just mentioned some good news, and then of course, um, you know, the debt the debt is exacerbated on itself, and they've they've had a long period of um, you know weak and tepid growth due to a lot of issues. Uh, you know, demographics being a major one, which is also why you know, their fatalities were so much larger because you have so many generations living within one household, um, which is, you know, not nearly the case in more spread out uh, uh, countries. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, you're seeing, you're seeing economic contrasts or contraction in Italy, um, you know, 8% in uh, 2020 is what some of the forecasts are. Uh, but yeah, you're going to see a huge, huge downgrade of debt. Um, you're going to see a huge increase in debt to GDP issues. Uh, I mean, uh, Fitch, for example, you know, is indicating that Italy's debt to GDP might increase uh, to to 156% of GDP by the end of by the end of this year. So, so yeah, countries like like Greece and Italy are really going to have to, you know, that's something to look at. Definitely. Uh, well, especially as you think there, Italy's one of the most indebted nations behind Japan and Greece, as, as you mentioned, and uh, that really that their economy was was already pretty fragile that their growth has really been stagnated over the last couple of years it's uh it's a shame to see especially that they have the the highest death toll from the coronavirus in europe as 
I think they're just above um, as of last at some point last week, I believe it was Tuesday that they had uh, above 27,000 deaths. So, I mean, that's a pretty significant number for, for the population. So uh, I really hope that, uh, <clears throat> that they're able to uh, come out of this with, with a little bit stronger, stronger economy. Uh, one thing that we should also mention here is, is, you know, in such a such a tragic time uh, globally, the coronavirus really uh, is everywhere uh, globally these days, and, and having an impact on various nations. But we have seen that that some some uh, leaders have used this as a, a way to uh, a way to get more power. Uh, we saw <laughs> President Trump say that he has exclusive power, and, and that he almost got laughed out of the room. Uh, because of the checks and balances that that the American Constitution has, but if we look at you know what is happening uh, in in various countries, and I know India, they they're blaming a lot of the the Muslims. We saw uh, in Turkey and, and China also have uh, gained more power. You know, overall, this is a really interesting article in the, in the Economist. So, Drew, I I know you probably have some thoughts on this, don't you? Yeah, there's going to be, I mean, when country, there, there are going to be huge power grabs and the Economist article demonstrates that it's really new democracies that might have the biggest issue. So, I mean, Hungary is a big example of this where, uh, you know, Viktor Orban, you know, just they passed the, the parliament passed the coronavirus law. And so the prime minister gets almost unlimited powers ruled by decree. Whether when, when you when, when, when structures take power like that, it's really tough to, to go back on that. And that's why there's a lot of people who are highly nervous about, you know, governments using apps to track their citizens and movements because when this returns to a more normal environment, is that a power they're going to give up? And it's tough to say. And yeah, there's a lot of ways you can use the coronavirus. Uh, Turkey released tons of prisoners, but they maintained they kept a lot of their political prisoners uh, in jail, for example, and, you know, and, and, and let out uh, petty criminals. Uh, so you're just seeing a lot of that. And of course, you know, as you mentioned, Italy um, or India, sorry, you know, they're using it as a way to, you know, further oppress a, a Muslim minority. But then you've seen that in Uganda, too, where uh, they, they arrested a bunch of homosexuals who were, who were living in kind of a housing complex together. Uh, so you can use so dictators and autocrats across the world can use can use this as a way to, you know, further oppress blind people across their countries. So it's really, I don't know, it's going to be a really tough, tough world for democratic capitalism now. And I think when we're looking at what happens afterwards, I think it's, I think this could be, you know, long lasting. I think it could last years. I think you're seeing a, a real, real reduction in, in openness and in, in, in democratic capitalism. So, I mean, that's one of the losses i should say of the coronavirus but yeah i think even before it, we, we we saw a big push uh towards more nationalistic and then uh, even even in china we we had the hong kong protests but uh a lot of the activists there have now been arrested and there there hasn't really been the, any news around that and i think one of the biggest points is is with everyone focused on coronavirus that this these points are not even really making making the news because everyone's worried about their, 
their uh, their bubble and how coronavirus is, is affecting them and their family, which which uh, is is important. But we we have seen that, you know, as you mentioned, a lot of them, but also you know, China arresting the Hong Kong, and then we've also seen Serbia as well have the emergency law, which puts the president solely in charge. I, I don't see how after they, they have these power grabs that they're going to give give power back uh, when, when this is all over. And when it's all over, we won't know. But I, it's interesting to see how a lot of this news is, is not really uh, discussed, even though they would be huge headlines if there wasn't the coronavirus. Yeah, I mean, we, we talked, you know, the other week about media bandwidth and, you know, there's things that would normally dominate a news cycle, you know, whether it was uh, Kim Jong-un, which, you know, we thought he was on his deathbed, was barely registering in the news, and increased Iran, you know, U.S. tensions. Now now imagine how much easier it is for, you know, autocrats in, in, in smaller economies and smaller countries to, you know, get a stronghold of their power when them doing that wouldn't even normally register in the news in the first place. So I, I think when this becomes the entire story, it's a lot easier for that stuff to fall under the cracks, for sure. But, um, I mean, and with that, I, is, there, is there anything else we, you know, should be bringing up or should be looking at, Grant? Well, one thing that I'm looking at is we're seeing the U.S. and Britain begin some trade talks tomorrow, and this would really be the, the first dialogue between the U.S. and Britain post-Brexit. Uh, and I think that Britain is probably pretty eager to set up a, a trade agreement with the United States because we are the destination for about 19% of, of British exports. Uh, so I think it's going to be interesting to see how, how that trade agreement all uh, shapes up. But that's one one big thing this week. Uh, what about yourself? What's on your radar? Yeah, I mean, home prices will be interesting to watch. Uh, Zillow kind of indicated that they might fall, you know, 2 to 3% this year. Um, you know, we might see some very fast declines in home sales. So I'm really going to be interested to see, you know, through 2021, if it looks like a buyer's market when the dust settles. Um, but, you know, and your home being, you know, your largest source most people have in their assets and, the ability to flip your home is a, is a huge source in wealth generation and retirement and everything else. So uh, it's really, you know, the bread and butter of American savings and one of the most important metrics we should be looking at. Um, with that, everybody, I think we'll call it a wrap. So uh, continue to stay safe out there. Um, you know, continue to stay sane amongst all these uh, existential crises you may or may not be having. Um, and with that, uh, we're out. And we'll, we'll talk to you next week. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the hosts and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of WealthFest. The mere appearance of content on the site does not constitute an endorsement by WealthFest. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. WealthFest does not make any representation or warranties with respect to accuracy, applicability, fitness, or completeness of the content. WealthFest does not warrant the performance, effectiveness, or applicability of any sites listed or linked in any of the content. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning.